Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. Hello and welcome to another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. Today I'm joined by Rafael Romeo, who is the president and CEO of DevTech Systems, Inc. DevTech is an international consulting firm dedicated to international development. DevTech has provided advisory services and technical assistance to government, the private sector, and civil society stakeholders in more than 100 countries. They're a global thought and practice leader and public financial management through which they help strengthen local and national government's capability to establish effective fiscal policies, implement sound budget practices, carry out tax and financial reforms, and improve accountability. At DevTech, Raphael oversees all aspects of DevTech's business operations and serves as DevTech's representative in professional forms. He's got a bachelor's in economics from Le Moyne College and a PhD in international finance from University of Maryland College Park. Raphael previously worked at the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, where he had a really interesting career working on a whole number of structural fiscal policy issues during the European financial crisis. He also worked on a series of IMF country assignments in places including Armenia, Uruguay, Jamaica, and places like Venezuela. It's really interesting. He also did some work on Cuba, which I hope we can talk about perhaps at some point as well. Before joining the IMF, he held positions at the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve and the Central Bank of Venezuela. So I'm really happy to be podcasting Rafael today to talk about public financial management and debt in the developing world. This is a big challenge, and this is going to be a part of the furniture for global development over the next five, maybe even, unfortunately, the next 10 years, how we unwind this and how we deal with this. So, Rafael, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Dan. I love your podcast, and your work is fantastic. I'm really enjoying your book, The American Imperative. It couldn't be more timely, so thank you for the invitation in this great forum. Thanks a lot. I told a little bit about your bio in the intro, but tell us a little bit about your background. So yes, I've been at DevTech for about, this is actually my 10th year, leading the firm, and it's super compelling because it allows me to merge. I think there's a big division, artificial one, that, for example, your book sets out to address a bit, which is the world of development, the world of USAID, uh, the World Bank, and the sister organization of the IMF are really separate. There's a bit of a blind spot from debt issues and the, the work of the IMF in brooking these crises where on the other side you have, you know, the likes of Elliott Capital or BlackRock or the Glencores or the PRC. And so these are crippling issues. And that is just the cause of, of so many economic uh, setbacks that could undo decades of work by development organizations. And it is, should not be an afterthought. It should be right at the forefront. So, Raphael, just for folks who aren't in high finance or think about macroeconomics, why is this important? Is it because if you have crushing amounts of debt, it means that businesses are going to have a hard time borrowing money? Does it mean that if you have a crushing amounts of debt, you have to make hard choices between paying interest rates or paying teacher salaries? If you're crushing amounts of debt, you know, it, there's a temptation to do things like print more money and, and in essence, crush people's savings. 
there's a series of bad things that have spin-off effects that don't necessarily impact macro economy, but actually impact normal people as a result of having all this crushing debt, right? Yeah, yeah. So let's let's start with what a debt instrument is. And what a debt instrument is, is a way to pull income into, into the present from the future. And so you make these promises that you're going to pay back. Just pay me now and I'll pay you back later. That That's the notion. You're bringing forward future income and that the reason someone would give you money now for promises to be paid later are varying, but in, in some cases it could be politically strategic for them to get you on the hook. And that could be, for example, the PRC, but there could be just straight out investment reasons. Uh, for example, a pension fund investing through BlackRock may want to pull income forward. And the governments that incur these debts that make these promises, when they can't meet them, they struggle and they find new ways of doing it. So what do they do? They'll, they will cut teacher salaries. Or they will print money and that will create inflation. And in a developing country, inflation will take on two forms. The first is straight higher prices like what we observe in the United States now. But the second is there's a very special price in a developing country. And that's the price of the U.S. dollar. And the U.S. dollar gets more expensive, just like apples and oranges at the grocery store. Except that price is called the exchange rate. And when you can't buy... As many U.S. dollars, that means you can't buy fuel, you can't run your generators, you can't have electricity, you can't buy essential food imports because you import most of your food if you are, for example, Venezuela because you've destroyed your agricultural sector over 50 years due to an over-reliance on the oil sector, for example, and so on and so forth. So you get really these crushing economic effects. Job loss immediately ensues because you can't buy inputs because if you're a factory that makes shoes... You probably have, you know, leather because you have cows nearby, but you don't have the shoelaces. You don't have the, the glue. All of those are industrial inputs. There's been a lot of work showing that, you know, a devaluation can destroy industries. And in fact, it does in many places, including Latin America and others, where unless you're exporting the rawest of materials, you don't have any value add. So there goes your job base. So inflation, job loss, all of that follows directly from, from a debt crisis, the inability to pay public Officials, you hear the stories of teachers who aren't paid in months. The salaries of public servants becomes a laughable. You hear the stories of engineers driving taxis in the former Soviet Union, these kinds of things. So that is what a, a debt crisis looks like. It looks like I can't make payroll. So what is the current state of public debt? Our listeners will have heard this topic. We've done a number of things around different fora that we do at CSIS. You work on these issues every day at DevTech. What's the current state of public debt? And let's focus on developing countries around the world. So we have, I think, a very, very dire situation that people are perhaps just getting around to looking at. Many of the developing countries, especially the ones where the U.S. makes its largest investments, uh, for example, through PEPFAR, which is the, the president's economic program for AIDS relief. Uh, it's a hallmark of U.S. Uh, foreign policy across many, many administrations. It's not a Republican or a Democrat nation. It's a United States initiative. These countries are indebted and they are all entering a debt crisis sooner or later because they've all overborrowed. I shouldn't say all, there may be exceptions here and there, but you see the, the Zambias, the Malawis, the you know, Ghanas, they're all entering into a debt crisis. The IMF just recently in its headline publication, uh, the World Economic Outlook, just, just last week, published an entire chapter on this issue. And you see that 60% of the low-income countries in the world are either at high risk of a debt crisis or are already in one. 
So they are all under pressure. And when you see something like that, you have to ask what happened uh, because they couldn't have all been poorly managed coincidentally at exactly the same time. So there's obviously an external shock. And the shock is 15 years of zero interest rate, the search for yields. So they have to go out and, and lend. And now the interest rate goes to 7% and they're all under pressure. So you have a you know, decade or more after the global financial crisis of very low interest rates and people like Elliott and BlackRock and Vanguard looking desperately, where can we invest? You know, fantastic. Uh, how about Zambia? And the PRC goes in and all of these other, you know, lenders go in for, for varying reasons. And, and then the interest rates goes to 7%. And guess what? You can't trade it. It's the same as, as you will see with select borrowers and investors inside the United States. We're in, we're in an interest rate squeeze and they're getting squeezed. And their debt burdens are unsustainable relative to the conditions of, you know, say 2014. Well, this isn't the first time we've seen a large amount of public debt in the global south. We had something called HIPIC, which was led by the United States and other developed nations to help forgive debt or write down debt in developing countries. And it actually had a, in many ways, many would argue that was one of the, the important things that helped create an African renaissance. So I suspect we're going to be asked to, to have an, you know, enforce, this was only 20 years ago or 20 or so years ago. It wasn't that long ago. You know, why can't we be doing that again? Or should we be doing that again? So that's a super important question. And we should, uh, you know, for the listeners, perhaps uh, define HIPIC, which is uh, an acronym. It stands for the Highly Embedded Poor Country Initiative, HIPC. One can just go to the treasury, treasury.gov. Uh, and Google, type HIPIC Treasury, and you'll get the speeches of the U.S. Treasury. They're very compelling to read. And they're, 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 again, it spans across administrations going from the Clinton to the Bush. And you hear, you read these, these speeches of Treasury officials saying the IMF and the World Bank will come to the table, will sell their gold. The, U, the U.S. will pay. It was a very, you know, concerted official. The Catholic Church got behind it. And the world, you know, made an effort to lower the debt. Of, of African countries, it was perceived as, you know, an unfair or, or shall we say, non-humanitarian way to go forward in helping uh, the world's poorest countries to indebt them. And so, uh, you know, the, G, the G7, the Group of Seven, which is the, the largest and wealthiest countries in the world, led by the United States and the Paris Club, which is the, the club of creditor countries, which again, is mainly Western wealthy G7 economies made that strategic decision to say, let's bring their debt down. You take a case like in Zambia, they had $2 billion in debt by the end of 2000, let's say 2005, 2006. Use round numbers. Today, they are at $20 billion of external debt, roughly, and another $12 billion of domestic debt. So you're talking about $32 billion, a 16-fold increase, uh, China and PRC being the largest bilateral lender into a country like Zambia. So how did that happen in, in 10, 15 years? It's not a fantastic outcome, given the efforts that were made just 20 years ago. It was a good effort, but maybe there was insufficient conditionality. Or so, Raphael, one of the things I think that's important for our listeners to understand is that in the 1980s and the 1990s, the debt that developing countries held were to the World Bank or to the IMF or to they held at Citibank or big money center banks, big global commercial banks that you and I, you know, our listeners would understand. What's different this time is much of this debt is to hedge funds, which were, you know, were existed in the 1990s, 
but are much bigger financial players today. And they're, as you were saying, looking for yields all over the world. And so they are, you know, they have a different incentives and a different kind of mindset than, say, a big bank like a Citibank. The other issue is, is that a lot of this is held by the People's Republic of China, not by the World Bank. And so it creates a whole series of other complexities. So why does the People's Republic of China have so much of this debt? And what role are they playing in this process? So, yes, I think you're hitting it right on the head with the manifold issues that come with a debt crisis. Again, this creditor landscape versus what we had in the 80s and 90s. So in today's world, we have a series of players that are that were not there before holding the debt of countries like Zambia. And that includes the PRC, uh, the People's Republic of China, as an official lender. And it includes at least three different complicated kinds of holders, which is, again, the traditional city banks. But you also have hedge funds and strategic hedge funds like Elliott. And they want to be strategic and holdouts. And we can deal with those a bit. Then you have a third group like Glencore, which is a mining company, and they are strategic in the sense that they will collateralize their debt and you may come out worse than you went in uh, because they just hold on to your exports. So what are the simple sort of issues that these this creditor landscape brings up? Well, number one, you can't coordinate with them. It's harder to coordinate. And in particular, China, we can throw off the private creditors and say, look, we're only going to deal with governments and we'll squeeze the private creditors and force them. So what is the question we're trying to answer here? Let me take a step back. When you have a debt crisis, a country like Zambia can't pay. They need help. The IMF will come in and, and help with a, with a loan, but the IMF won't lend if it knows that they're on an unsustainable path. They need to get on a sustainable path. And for them to be on a sustainable path, the people who lend to them have to agree that they're going to provide financing and agree to take haircuts. Haircuts are an explicit financing item. So the IMF says, hey, you owe 100 bucks, but you can't pay 100 So let's take it down to 50 and then talk about how we're going to pay the 50. If you can't close the other 50 because people agree to write it down, well, then you don't have a way forward and the IMF is unable to lend. China is not in the traditional place where you would agree to lower that from 150, which is the Paris Club. They've never joined the Paris Club. So they had to create a new thing. What is the Paris Club? I know what it is, but explain to our listeners, what is the Paris Club? So the Paris Club is, is, a, is a club of creditors that originally met in Paris to actually to finance Argentina's default a long time ago. And it has remained a, a forum that engages with the IMF. And it is the place where wealthy countries go to agree, like, let's move forward and bring down the debt and have a consensual, we all agree to take 10% haircut type agreement. And we all lower the debt. If we all get paid less by 10%, then the, the debt can all go down. And that number is discussed at the Paris Club and at the IMF. And so that is the role of that institution. But if you're missing... It's arguably an informal but real international institution. Yeah. And I, I would say the informality is very low. I mean, at this point. It's a formal institution with a set of rules. Part of what it has to do is they, they everyone puts their cards on the table and say, well, how much money did you lend? At what interest yeah. rate? For how long? And what collateral could you collect if you can't collect on the loan? Like things like that, right? Exactly. Yeah. It's the, it's the discussion of like... Let's all get in a room and figure out, you know, this country owes 100. The IMF is telling us they can only pay 50. How are we going to get from 100 to 50? And what's fair? It is official creditors. You can, you can bring in private concerns through your representation, but it is the place where you can get this meeting moving. 
the Chinese government, the PRC, is not a part of it. And they are the world's largest official bilateral creditor to the developing world. So you have literally the largest player not joining it. So they created a new framework in 2020, which is called the Common Framework. Just a fancy way of saying the creditor of the Paris Club plus China. So with this creditor landscape, you have to create a new, right off the bat, you see the coordination is difficult and you have to create a new thing because the Paris Club isn't working. Why is that? Well, because we have to coordinate with these new set of lenders, in particular, the PRC, which is an official lender and which has not only chosen not to be in the Paris Club, but also has a very important role inside the IMF, both as an official creditor and because it's got a lot of, you know, official representation inside the fund. Things that you talk about in your book, they are important players from a sort of management and staffing perspective in the decisions that are made at the fund, but also they can apply policy levers within the IMF and say, stop that loan. And so those are the sorts of problems that are arising in this new creditor landscape that you wouldn't have had before. Before it would have been, you know, smoky room, cigarettes uh, or cigars, Paul Volcker and Walter Riston at the bank, yeah. at that right, this sort of a thing. It was a simpler time. Well, and, and let's be honest, Paul Volcker was the chairman of the Federal Reserve. And you do, as a banker, I don't think want to be on his bad side because he is your bank. If you're a bank, that's your bank. We just don't have that relationship. Sometimes you need to get people to agree on difficult decisions. Like, hey, how, how much of a loss are you going to take? How much of a loss are you going to take? So I think one of the things I think our listeners should understand is that for the most, Raphael, I think it's accurate to say that the People's Republic of China said, I lent $100. I want my $100 back. That as of right now, for the most part, they've been unwilling to take what's called a haircut, a reduction in their debt from $100 to $50 or $75. Is that accurate? Yes, that's basically their policy. And they have many, many reasons for that. Let me try a reason as to why the, the reason they say or they don't say is, I think, a domestic policy reason. They have lots of domestic debt as well as international debt. And they're afraid if they say to Zambia, well, I don't know, one of these, a developing country, you don't have to pay us back $100. You can pay us back $50. People in China, where there's lots of other loans from in lots of other institutions, they say, wait a minute, why does Zambia get a, a 50% reduction in its debt? I'd like that too for my construction project in, in a city in the interior of China that hasn't gone so well. And they're afraid it'll create a big, enormous problem for their banking system and for their economy, their domestic economy, if they set a precedent. I think that's what the theory is. Does that ring true for you, Raphael? I think so. I mean, you could just imagine this is, and there may be multiple reasons. That screams reasonable to me. But there may be others. For example, you're talking about a country of over a billion people. How do you coordinate across? If I am, think about at the agency level, if I am at Ministry X and this loan was approved, it may be very detrimental to my career to be the person to say, hey, let's take a haircut. Who wants to stick their neck out literally, let me put it that way, in a place like mainland China where I wouldn't necessarily say it's a a culture that you can bring your whole self to work. Let me put it that way. And I'm not sure you want to bring your whole self to work in mainland China. So like, Hey guys, maybe we need to kind of have an honest conversation about this. Like, I don't think there's like, you know, like in the U S like culture, like, Oh, we're all good with like an honest conversation. Well, I'm not sure you kind of lean in on quote unquote, honest conversations in some of these jobs because it could maybe bad for your health and your family's health. You may take a very large loss from the loss that you're proposing. You may have 
incurred. Just imagine the deal making that went on with some of these debts. There is a host of reasons why it is more difficult, I would imagine, to get that restructuring approved from the PRC. And so, well, you know, there may be strategic reasons why they're not there. Like, why would we give up debt when, uh, you know, we've got these people now, you know, really from a more cynical perspective, they may choose to hold the debt because it is leverage over so many of these countries. Or they may have legitimate economic reasons. They say, look, we, we really can't afford to lose this money, which is what, what their debt restructuring has taken. And I say that in quotes. The form that it has taken has been extensions on the, on the, so yeah, you still owe me a hundred and you could pay me back in 20 years instead of 15, or I'll lower your interest rate from 4% to 3.5 and things like that. Just get them barely going, but that doesn't get them, you know, these countries remain under the yoke of a high debt burden. You have to get this, uh, this debt overhang. You've got to get debt relief. If I put you in a house that is worth in the market 200 and you're indebted, but you know, you have a mortgage of a million on it. That's what these countries are facing that people want to understand. You have to bring their debt down because they're never, that debt burden is going to eat away at their, any savings they create, and et cetera. It doesn't matter how you finance their, their mortgage and lower their interest rate. They're going to pay back a million for something that's worth 200,000. You've destroyed their ability to, re, to, to save for retirement. You've destroyed their ability to pay for college for their kids. That million dollar debt overhang isn't, is just an insurmountable burden to that family. So, that's what these Zambias and Ghanas are facing. So it sounds like we've got a really complicated problem. If we do nothing, what can we expect in the short term and what happens next? So in the very short term, we, we can get more of the same, which has been just slow, painful negotiations around debt restructuring. Many of these countries halt their debt payments because they simply run out of money. So... They are then locked out of future financing and then, and here come the cuts to spending and then the high inflation in these places, the onset of economic crises in Africa. And from there, well, then comes the rise in populist movements, the potential for deterioration in social conditions. Just from a humanitarian perspective, if you've been working for 20 years to fight malaria and the water company stops working because, you know, their employees haven't been paid in six months and you can't import the necessary things to get the water pump going, for example, diesel. Now they're drinking dirty water and here comes malaria, cholera, etc. Why would Americans care? And I think this is a very important problem. Well, we care because all of our problems here that come from abroad, and there are many, come from abroad because of the relative stability of the global economy. So think about oil prices. If war set on, look at what happened with the war in Ukraine. Up, oh, oil goes to $100 a barrel. That's not good for us. What about immigration? Well, Central America and Haiti and many other places, Cuba, Venezuela. Cuba and Venezuela are excellent examples. They're here because of economic mismanagement. These are fundamentally wealthy countries. Fundamentally wealthy. And yet here we go with five to seven million Venezuelans circling South America and into the southern border. Same with uh, the Northern Triangle, which are obviously less less developed than Venezuela and Cuba. But nonetheless, uh, so you're going to have immigration pressures. You're going to have the rise of transnational crime and terrorism. Populist movements aligning against us and you know opening a space. Our real military risks from 
PRC or other places that I'm, you know, I'm getting out of my depths with some of this, but you don't want them building up allies all over the place, setting up military bases. Hey, why don't we have a military base in Cuba while we're at another one in uh, El Salvador? So we have both sides of from sea to shining sea. So this is not a theoretical conversation. This is very possible. So if someone has debt to China, China did this in Sri Lanka and well, hey, we'll forgive your debt, but you're going to give me a port. Right. This is what the issue is. So so if you should worry about this, part of the worry is, is if someone owes debt to China, like El Salvador and El Salvador says, well, I can't pay you. The Chinese says, that's fine. Give me that port on the coast. That's deep water. And don't worry, I'm only going to use it for containers. But it's dual use. Not for submarines, not for aircraft carriers. Don't worry. So this is a real issue and it's going to have geopolitical issues. But it's also if you're in the development community, all the things that Raphael was talking about in terms of like whether it has a negative impact on schools, negative impact on health, whether it has a negative impact on food security. There will be second order effects for global development for the development community who may not be thinking about these issues because it's kind of over there as sort of this macro thing. And I'm just focused on delivering my, pro- my important and useful project. But this country context is shifting, unfortunately, in a negative way. Yeah, I think, look, if there is one sort of small, you know, minor contribution that I can make to the development world from my background, which is, which is different than perhaps the typical, you know, path that would lead one to work in development is as follows. There's a lot of important work by real development economists like Land Pritchett that, that show that you could get a real setback in a country and that will undo the, the the efforts of years and decades of work by these very dedicated, these people are, are, you know, we joke around, they are doing the Lord's work out there. You know, if you're a, a 32-year-old and you've dedicated years of your life to being in some of the most yeah, grueling economic conditions, you know, in these places, and they're doing it and they're spending their time on this and, uh, you know, you will see it reversed in a month, in one month with an economic crisis. And there is a blind spot in the U.S. policy framework, which says, and I heard this directly told to me, that we don't need to worry about our investment dollars in the rest of the world being mismanaged or being used, for example, to pay the debt of the Chinese lenders of the PRC, because we don't do government to government. We don't do G to G. And we have earmarked our money for pet farms. Earmarks in our solution. Avoiding G to G is not a solution. This is a key message. This is the, we are at DevTech screaming this. Anytime you put money in a country, it doesn't matter if you give it to DevTech Systems as an award. We just got a USAID award. Let's go to Morocco. Let's help. Literally, DevTech is in Morocco helping stand up a very valuable program to, to teach professors to do sign language to help children in Morocco that are deaf speak in Arabic sign language. And we're trying to stand up a program with many fantastic universities like Tennessee, like Gallaudet. Guess what's going to happen? Our money is going to go to pay external debt in Morocco. The minute you enter, it is one, there is a blind spot in how we think about this. This is not government debt. This is external debt. And external debt relies on a single point of entry, which is called the central bank of the country. When dollars come in, they enter the economy and then dollars go out to pay the debt. It's as simple as that. You earn money through exports or through foreign assistance or through borrowing, and you spend money on imports or on debt service. And 
debt service, there I can show you in the documents of the IMF how grant funding is an element of paying for debt service. In fact, the World Bank raises its grants when there is a crisis. So there is a straight line between USAID, DFC, State Department, USTDA, Exim Bank, USDA, DOLI Lab, you name it. There are 50 FTF, DOD, you know, foreign military financing, foreign military, all of that money is entering that central bank. And all of that money is then prioritized. What do we have to pay this month? Oh, we got to pay the Chinese. Boom, out go the dollars. And when the people who DevTech is hiring, because we put those dollars into the central bank to pay local currency to pay, for example, our professors teaching sign language. They turn around, they're like, man, I really need to buy a gallon of gas. Well, the gallon of gas went up in price. And so that's how they get the dollars. Or, or put a very simple example. If I am the government of Zambia, so we had an education program that ended in December in Zambia. If I'm the government of Zambia and I am partnering with USAID, and I am, USAID says, hey, I'll throw in a hundred bucks, you throw in a hundred bucks. And let's get this lunch program for kids going in the schools. This is a programs that occur all over the world. Fantastic. The McGovern Dole program where we recycle, you know, our, our dollars and our ag exports and all that to help schools provide lunches because nutrition is, you know, correlated with kids learning. Guess what happens? The government of Zambia is like, wow, we got a hundred bucks from USA. Fantastic. I'm not spending a hundred anymore. I got to reallocate this to debt service. And when, why? Because that service is a third of their, of their uh, revenues. And it used to be nothing. And it's the case for, you know, you name it. I could give you a list of countries right now where debt service, as a percentage of their, of their revenue, is approaching 30 35%. It's taking one third of every penny. You know, we all talk about, hey, let's raise domestic resource mobilization. Fantastic. Let's raise taxes. Yeah. Well, they're raising taxes to pay for these crushing debt burdens that are coming from 15 years of strategic lending by the Glencores, by the, uh, the, the PRCs, by the, the, the different commercial entities that have entered these countries. It is China, but it's not just China. There are also commercial creditors that are quite punishing in their, in their positions. And so it's in an unsustainable state. It's very high and it will both leverage foreign aid to get itself paid back and, and destroy the efforts of humanitarian organizations. And this is, we, we at DevTech control a very important function for USAID, which is called foreignassistance.gov. And what we're trying to document now is just how much money the official development assistance community of the world puts in and how little voice they have in these debt discussions. It's wild. Well, so what, what steps do we need to be taking, Raphael, given all of this? So I think from my perspective, the first step is really to recognize this as a community and say, you know, that country has debt to bank X. The payment of that debt is not coming from exports alone. It is coming from exports, but also from foreign assistance. And so foreign assistance needs to be at the table. And that this is a very practical thing that can be done at the U.S. government level. It's a whole of government effort to recognize the stakeholders that should be involved because it's led by, you know, this very narrow group of people who are actually engaged in the debt market. For example, Treasury, IMF, the footprint of people who contribute to debt service is not the exporters. It is the foreign assistance community. It is the people who are throwing dollars into that central bank 
And the largest, you take a country like Malawi, the largest, you have 12% of GDP entering as official development assistance. So USAID should have a very important voice and you have fantastic leadership over there who I think understands this, like Administrator Power or the Chief Economist Dean Carlin. These guys are, are great and they should be, they, they should have a very important role in this. The second is assistance to these countries needs to take on a larger role in helping them be more transparent about how these debts were incurred, which was the ministry that signed away, you know, our, our copper exports for 20 years. What was in that deal? What are the clauses that China has put into these loans? Do we have congressional oversight at, at these countries? The Zambian Congress have an office that publishes and makes public to the country the terms and conditions of the debt that that country is responsible for. That would make a big difference. And then have we empowered civil society organizations like, you know, they all have a banking association. They all have an association of exporters. They have fantastic humanitarian partners on the ground. These people can mobilize a lot of political resistance to some of these deals, which are not in the interest of these countries, or the debt restructuring. And that, that is a big fundamental change that needs to happen in many places in Africa that you don't see. If you go, this is a country that you're very familiar, maybe you can speak to it, Dan. If you go to Argentina, if the IMF enters Argentina, what kind of a security cordon do you need around their, their hotel? And that's because the average bear in Argentina understands what a debt crisis is, what a devaluation looks like, what the impact on their economy is, how they may have, over time, moved politically towards populist solutions that are not in their long-term interests or whatever the view is there. But the average person in Argentina is cognizant of some level of public finance, and they know that when a debt crisis comes, they're in trouble. I, I think in Africa, we need a lot more of that civil society pushback, and hopefully we can, we can channel it towards, not towards populist movements, but towards you know effective, transparent institutions and make great investments in things like public uh, financial management systems that publish how much healthcare debt is out there. The largest single component of, of debt in Zambia is healthcare. We looked at it. It, it, is, it is the hospital medical debt that's, a, you know, these construction of facilities. We built those. So you need to really step up programs that, that get these countries, domestic institutions, to be responsive to good governance needs because these people don't want to end up over leveraged and in crises. And it, this may be the case where the last time they saw a crisis was HIPAA. And it was resolved very smoothly, so to speak, through IMF and World Bank discussions. With this creditor landscape, you are not going to be able to swing, I believe, another HIPIC uh, so easily. It's going to take a different form. It's going to look very different. And we've already seen a very slow-moving, delayed, ineffective series of discussions under the common framework in the case of Zambia, which have dragged on starting from 2020 all the way until now. And that 2020 agreement was because... From 2018 to 2020, nothing was happening on Zambia's debt. So we're looking at a three to five year discussion period where no progress substantially has been made. That's what that's what the debt restructuring landscape looks like right now. Oh, boy, this is a this is a very sobering conversation. Rafael, I really appreciate you taking the time. I really have enjoyed talking to you. And this is really a lot to chew on. I really uh, this has been great. And let's do this again. All right. Thank you so much, Dan. And I. Uh, Again, fantastic podcast, and I think your book does a great job of, of what I struggle with, just to get this these very important concepts into the collective consciousness. So I, I, 
I'm very grateful to be able to speak with you and help me with this. Uh, your book has done a great job of, of bringing some of these issues to the fore. Well, thanks for your partnership, Raphael. This has been great, and let's do it again. All right. Take care. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 